We are reading today's Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 17 through 42. Then the priest took action, he and all who were with him, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, and said, Go stand, the temple, and tell the people the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their teaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. When they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him, kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamiel, a teacher of the law, respected by all people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. Then he said to them, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas and the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got the people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him, and when they called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day, 
in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Carol, thank you so much. We gave you quite a lesson today, and we're grateful on this Bible Sunday um, to read this lengthy portion of the scripture. Uh, we were talking about before we began our service today, we really ought to have more scripture reading and less preaching. Amen? But not so fast. Um, we're so grateful, Ellen Garrett, uh, Megan Teagarden, Gwen Sass, all of our staff and all of our volunteers uh, who work with our children. What a blessing it is today uh, on this milestone day to give uh, to our students the Word of God. That is such a privilege. And Shelby, thank you for your prayer. Thank you for reminding us of our hands and feet being used in service uh, with God. I had the privilege of going to Waverly on Thursday with one of our lay people, and I'll share a little bit more about that in the context of the message, but we're grateful for the privilege that's ours not only to pray, but to be present with those who are suffering and who are struggling. I do wanna mention one other uh, concern before we begin uh, with the message today, and that is one of our key leaders, George Pust, uh, his wife passed away on Friday. Joyce died in hospice on Friday morning, and we lift up that family along with Kathy and Denise and all their loved ones today. We remember Joyce and give thanks to God for her life and remember her family. Well, we're in the fourth week. If you joined us on August the 8th, you know that we started this series on the book of Acts. We're referring to it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, not of the apostles. This is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, which is the risen Christ within us, continuing the ministry of Jesus, who has now ascended to the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us as we write through our own lives, Acts chapter 29. And we began talking about how the Holy Spirit empowers us, first of all, to stick together. That was Acts 1. And then in Acts 2, we talked about how the Spirit of God empowers us to bear witness in terms that a diverse audience can understand. And then last week in Acts 3 and 4, we talked about how the Spirit empowers us to bring healing and restoration, particularly to those who are outsiders. This morning, based on Carol, your reading, I want us to think for a few minutes about how the Spirit of God empowers us to endure opposition. George Whitfield, who was an 18th century preacher of the gospel from Great Britain, was a contemporary of John Wesley, once said, and I quote, if you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to be opposed. In our day, he said, to be a Christian is really to become a scandal. First Peter chapter four, verses 12 and following says as much. Listen to this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. And the rest of that passage says, if you are, listen to this, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God is resting within you. 
If any of you suffer as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God for the privilege of bearing his name. Now, I would add to that my own paraphrase that if there is someone reviling you, that does not give you permission to revile others. Jesus was very specific in his Sermon on the Mount when he commanded that we're to love our opponents, we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But be sure and understand, do not be surprised by opposition. In fact, I've discovered as a clergy person, and maybe you have as a disciple, that it comes with the frog. It was Dwight L. Moody who said, the best work, the most important work, usually meets with the strongest opposition. And I think that's true. But I believe that this is also true. With God, anything that stands against you will always be inferior to that which resides within you. I want to say that again. With God, anything that stands against you will always be inferior to what resides within you. Now, I want us to see this morning that the initial pushback, the initial opposition of the early church and of the gospel didn't come from outside. It didn't come from the Roman government at first. It didn't come from the secular world. It came from the inside, the opposition. It was friendly fire. Last week, we saw how Peter and John were confronted by the religious authorities for healing a lame man and causing a stir in the temple. You remember they were grilled, they were harassed, they were threatened, and they were warned to never speak the name of Jesus again. Well, good luck with that. It didn't work out well. Peter spoke wisely and boldly to power when he said, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you instead of God, you must judge, but we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Peter's response actually implies, I think, that there is a time and a place for civil disobedience. There is. But notice, their noncompliance is never uncivil. When noncompliance becomes uncivil, becomes hostile, becomes coercive and violent, we sabotage our own cause. And Peter was not anti-temple. He wasn't anti-Jewish. He was a Galilean Jew. But he was pro-Jesus. And that got him in trouble. He was not, first of all, a protester. He was a witness. He was not anti. He was pro-Jesus. But don't be surprised. The opposition in Acts 3 and 4 intensifies in chapter 5, and the disciples continue to gather as a movement in what's called Solomon's portico, that is Solomon's colonnade that is within the temple. They're gathering there. They're still preaching the name. They're having an impact. People are beginning to follow them, but Luke says that the high priest comes down uh, with a bad case of ecclesial jealousy. He has them arrested and jailed in the public jail, but during the night there's this miraculous liberation. And what's interesting is when the disciples are set free from prison, rather than retreating, 
the next morning, they go right back to the temple preaching their message. These apostles would not be discouraged. I think it was John Maxwell, a leadership guru, who once said, you can easily determine the caliber of a person by the amount of opposition it takes to discourage him or her. They would not be discouraged and they would not be silenced. And so the Sanhedrin, who is opposing the movement now, does the only thing they know to do. They call a charge conference And this time, they bring not just Peter and John, that's what they did in Acts 3 and 4. This time, they bring all the apostles. We gave you strict orders, says the high priest, not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and your instruction, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. It's fascinating to me that the religious authorities will never call Jesus by name this man and Peter who has sermon will preach who is ever ready to bear witness gives this little sermonette you remember I said last week there are 19 sermons in the book of Acts one third of this book dedicated to the apostolic faith to the preaching of the apostles and he delivers in this little sermonette what is the Christian kerygma or the essential components, elements of the apostolic doctrine that are still key to us. The God of our ancestors, he says, raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, but God has highly exalted him at his right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those of us who obey him. It's a gutsy message in the face of authority. And then note the response of the Sanhedrin. Verse 33, when they heard Peter's witness, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them opposition. And I think they would have killed them had it not been for one man, one Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, I want you to pause it there for just a second because I want to give you a little historical background. The Sanhedrin was essentially the Jewish Supreme Court, which had not only nine chief justices, in fact, they had 70 chief justices, and the majority of the members of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. I'll explain the Sadducees in a moment. But there was a minority of Jews, Pharisees, that were also a part of the 70. You say, what's the difference? Big difference. This is not a homogeneous group in the Sanhedrin, and I want to explain. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple. They were affluent, they were well-to-do, they were aristocratic, they were highly educated, they were large and in charge. They were the Vatican, the United Methodist Center, the Southern Baptist Convention. They were friendly to the Romans, perhaps not as concerned with religion as they were with politics. They tended to be a bit more conservative in that they insisted, the Sadducees, on the literal interpretation 
of just the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. They did not believe in the resurrection and they did not believe in principalities, angels, or demons. That's the Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were in charge of the synagogue, the local communities of faith. They were much more popular with the people. They gave equal authority to the oral tradition as to the written word. The oral tradition of the Jews was contained in what's called the Mishnah, which was the rabbinical commentary of scripture to a shifting context. The Pharisees believed in resurrection and they believed in angels and demons and were perhaps more pastoral than institutional. Moreover, within the Pharisees of the first century, there were two schools of thought in the Pharisees. One was based on the teaching of Rabbi Shema, who existed towards the end of Herod's life. He was more traditional. And the other school was the teaching of Rabbi Hillel, which was a bit more lenient. Now, according to the Mishnah, listen to this, there were 316 disagreements between these two schools of thought, almost as many as there are with United Methodists. But not only did the Pharisees differ with the Sadducees, and they were both Jews, the Pharisees differed with the Pharisees. Two schools of thought. The Sadducees in the meeting in the Supreme Court said, we need to weed out these heretics. Peter and John, it's anathema, get rid of the dissidents. And they would have had it not been for one Pharisee who was of the school of Hillel, his name was Gamaliel, some say Gamaliel, his name means God is my reward, my recompense. Luke says he was respected by all the people. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian says that Gamaliel's title was not rabbi, which means teacher, it was rabban, which means master. It means great one. Known for his wisdom and insight, he ordered all of the disciples to be ushered out so that they could have a closed session. And what Gamaliel did next was a game changer. This is leadership. Verse 35, chapter five, he said, fellow Israelites, Consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. That's interesting that the word consider in Greek, it means take heed. It means be reasonable. It means be logical. Don't be rash or reckless. And then Gamaliel, being a good Jewish lawyer, went to case citations. He remembered two similar cases from the past that caused alarm to the Sanhedrin. Two men who were thought to be messianic figures in the past, Thutis and Judas the Galilean, both of whom sparked movements, rebellious movements, that burned out as quickly as they flamed up. Both men were killed and their following vanished. They dispersed, they disappeared. 
Gamaliel is saying, we didn't make a fuss about them and we don't need to make a fuss now. And then he makes the motion in the charge conference. Leave these men alone. Don't interfere with them. Don't mess with them. Don't try to eradicate the temple of them. If their teaching is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is of God, you can't stop it. If it is of God and you try to stop it, you may even discover that you are fighting against God. Have you ever noticed how sometimes when we rush to fix a problem, we actually create new problems that we never anticipated. The motion was seconded. All in favor, aye. All opposed, nay. The ayes have it. Meeting adjourned. By the way, this Pharisee named Gamaliel of the school of Hillel was also a mentor to a man whose name was Saul, who became Paul. So they flogged the disciples, they let them go, they released them, and what happened next, I think is almost unbelievable. You would think that after a good beating, after a flogging, that is 39 lashes with a leather whip that has bits of bone on it on the backside, you would expect that the apostles would go AWOL at this point. Certainly you would expect that they would research the witness protection program or they would leave town or they would go into hiding, but that isn't what they did. The conclusion of the story, verses 41 and 42 says this. As the disciples left the council, they rejoiced. What? They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim the name of Jesus. They were empowered to endure the opposition. Warren Bennis is a leadership guru who once said, one of the most reliable indicators and predictors of true leadership is an individual's ability to find meaning in negative events and to learn from even the most trying of hardships. Enduring opposition. It reminds me of what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 5. We, we rejoice in these sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. I've been thinking about those 13 servicemen and women at the airport in Kabul. We've been praying for their families. 13 servicemen and women, average age 22. I suppose when they enlisted, when they went and signed up at the office, they knew the risk, but they took it anyway. They have names. Johanny, 
Nicole, Darren, Hunter, Dagan, Humberto, David, Jared, Riley, Dylan, Kareem, Maxton, and Ryan. Average age 22. Ryan, by the way, from Corrington, Tennessee, 15 miles northeast of Knoxville, 22 years old. We remember their families, and today we call them worthy. Greater love has no person than one who lays down his life for his friends. How about for the strangers that didn't know, but the service was worth the risk to these boys and girls. I went to Waverly last Thursday, and with this I close. Eddie Whalen went with us. He's one of our laymen here. He's a lawyer. Every preacher needs a good lawyer now and then. And we made the trip. I have some connections in Humphreys County. My great uncle lived there. He retired there. He preached in the little church there. And when we entered the town where we used to fish on Trace Creek when I was a boy, it was a war zone. And they, they already refer to it as, as Humphrey County's Katrina. 17 inches of rain in five hours. And we, we saw destruction unlike I have seen uh, in a long time. Nearly 200 homes destroyed, over 400 homes have struggles. We heard stories, 20 people lost their lives, including the twins, those babies that their dad was holding on to and their dad lost his life, as did the twins. We heard stories, we visited all around town, and one story we heard was of a woman who had gone outside during the storm to get something out of the carport, and the water began to rise so quickly that she couldn't get back in the house, and so she, she just jumped in the bed of the truck. And after a couple of minutes, that truck started floating started floating down the road. And she began to look for something to, as the truck began to submerge, she saw a log and she, she leapt out of the, the bed and grabbed onto the log and just held on for dear life and just prayed the whole time. And after a minute, here came a jet ski in Humphreys County on Highway 70 with some teenager, I guess, or young adult in it and just saw her and at risk to himself, fished her out of the current. Who knew a jet ski could be a tool of salvation? I have, they don't know who it is. They can't find who it is. But his name is Worthy. Eddie and I were privileged to take a check from you all, your contributions. And we gave it to the lay leader who is a friend of mine over 50 years, who's a member of the United Methodist Church in Waverly. He's an optometrist who is working sunrise to sunset to care for his neighbors. And do you know, he didn't complain one minute. He wasn't griping. He wasn't kvetching. He was actually rejoicing that he was considered worthy to share the suffering of others 
for the sake of the name. Worthy is the name. Empowered to not just survive, but to persevere in a hope that will not disappoint us. In the 19th century, last word, and I mean it this time. She was a British PK. Her dad was a pastor. Caroline Maria Noel was her name. And she wrote a song. It's in your hymn book. Don't look for it now, but here's, here's what she wrote. Listen to this. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess him king of glory now. Tis the Father's pleasure we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. Humbled for a season to receive a name from the lips of sinners unto whom he came. Faithfully he bore it, spotless to the last, brought it back victorious when from death he passed. In your hearts enthrone him. There let him subdue all that is not holy, all that is not true. Crown him as your captain in temptation's hour. Let his will enfold you in its light and power. There is a name that empowers you to endure the opposition. And with him, anything that stands against you will always be inferior to what resides within you. In Jesus' name.